I know a woman who always asks her waiter for the dessert menu before she looks at the entrees. She doesn't want the middle of the meal to be so good that it ruins the ending. I used to have another friend, Mr. Jerry, who took the concept even farther. He kept a framed poem in his room at the assisted living that included the line, once you're 80, eat dessert first, just in case. I'm still a long way from my 80s, but I confess that even I am a little less patient with every passing year. I'm running out of time. I checked it out, the American Film Institute's list of the 100 most important films. I've seen 37 of them. I may finish that list. Then I went to the Modern Library to look at the 100 greatest novels ever. I've only got 13 under my belt. Rolling Stone tells me I've only heard 14 of the 100 most important albums from beginning to end. There was a time when I was a completionist. When I started something, I wouldn't move on until I had gotten all the way through. I'd gotten to the end. I never quit a book halfway through. I never gave up on a movie or an album until I made it to the end. But I don't have that kind of time anymore. I've wasted so many hours on TV shows I didn't even enjoy anymore just because I needed to get to the end and see how it all worked out. Don't get me wrong, I've not gotten any better at walking away from an unfinished story. I just cheat now. Now I can go to Wikipedia and find out how this ends and spare myself the trouble of getting there. I've never seen Casablanca. I don't know if I ever will at this point, but I can quote its final line to you. I suspect I'm not the only one who places an outsized value on how things end. We skip to the end. We plan for the ending. We grow tired of starting things unless we know we're going to get to finish them. And when we look backwards, we tend to evaluate the moments of our life, the relationships in our lives, based on how each one ended. When we reflect on a previous relationship, rarely do we begin by thinking about how it began or the various things that happened along the way. No, normally our thoughts are geared towards what went wrong and how it ended. We stay up at night thinking how we could have fixed that conversation with just one last word. We rarely end things as well as we hoped we would. And if there's any consolation in that, it's that the people who are paid to end things aren't much better at it. It's been nine years, and fans still haven't forgiven anyone for the TV show Lost and how it ended. It's funny how the end of anything, a story, a relationship, a ball game, it has this kind of superpower the ending is like a, a time traveler, able to work backwards and change everything that happened before it to give it a new meaning and a new purpose. If something ends well, then we look back on it and laugh, even if we hated being in the middle of it. And if something ends poorly, it doesn't really matter how much joy it brought us along the way, the memory becomes painful. The last play of a game might only be three seconds out of three hours, but if the referees miss that blatant pass interference call, then no one goes home talking about how great the Saints played. A year later, 
The ending changes everything. We live as if the ending can define our entire existence. That's what creeps into our minds when we think about our own ends. We think about the legacy that we'll leave behind. And we can't help but thinking about our own end when we belong to a church, which is a family made so vast and varied that it seems there is always someone dying, someone to grieve, someone to commend to God, someone reminding us of our own frailty. And I bring all this up because we are nearing another kind of ending today. The end of our liturgical year. Next week is Christ the King Sunday, which will be the official last Sunday of the Christian year. And then first Sunday after Thanksgiving, it's Advent 1. We start all over. The new year is here. We celebrate a little earlier than everybody else. And the lectionary today offers us Scripture selections that help us think biblically about all these endings that are always near our mind. It's Jesus who brings up the subject, seemingly out of nowhere. Everybody else was having a good time admiring the temple, admiring the vast place that had been built to the worship of God, admiring its beauty and its wonder. And to this moment, Jesus brings up an uncomfortable topic. It's, it, it sounds like he's trying to be encouraging, But it doesn't really come off that way, does it? As the disciples and the others are gathered together talking about how beautiful the temple is, how wonderful its decorations and its adornments are, Jesus tells them how it's going to end. As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All will be thrown down. Disciples ask him, Teacher, when is this going to happen? What sign can we look for? What kind of heads up are we going to get? There's something in us that comes alive when we start talking about the ending. You get the sense that maybe Jesus' disciples had been nodding off through the lesson so far. But then when he talks about how it ends, they start asking questions. But Jesus won't answer them directly. Beware that you aren't led astray. Many will come and say, I am he, the time is near. Do not go after them, he says, which is good advice, but not really what they were asking. He goes on, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, They will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none can withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Do you notice that Jesus never really answered the question? The disciples want to know when the end is coming and how it's going to happen. And he gives them a few details, but he doesn't really stop there or linger very long. In fact, he spends very little time discussing the end. He mostly talks about before this occurs. Before all this occurs. I know that this is going to show my age in a very particular way, making me seem impossibly young to some and impossibly old to others. But I can't read this passage 
without a tune running through my head, a tune that uh, played at every junior high and high school dance I went to, usually toward the end. I just Every time I read this, I read it in the rhythm of the lead singer of Semisonic saying, Closing time, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. When we heard that back in the day, we thought it was really subversive. Because on the face of it, it's a song about last call at a bar, which for us junior high and high school students felt like we were getting one over on all the chaperones at the, dre- at the dance. We didn't have broadband internet or lyrics genius back then. So we couldn't look up to find out the song is, in fact, written about the birth of the lead singer's daughter, which would have seemed way less cool to me back then. It's about the recognition that her life's beginning was the end of some other life, period of life for him. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And that experience, that terrified hope of a new parent is a perfect summary of today's gospel lesson. You see, we spend so much time worrying about the ending, obsessing over endings, all because we are scared of them, scared for something to end, a relationship, a season of life, even our own lives. And the disciples get it. They share our fear and obsession. It was like a gong for them when Jesus said, the end is coming. They heard that and they were like, oh, tell us more. What do you mean? Give us the details. Don't leave us hanging. You've just gotten to what really matters. And Jesus in his patience, he doesn't dismiss them out of hand. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. Endings aren't real. He doesn't tell them not to think about the endings that'll never actually come. But neither does he indulge their fear or let it run wild. Jesus redirects their attention. See, the disciples were concerned about when the ending was going to happen and how it would happen. But Jesus points them to who will be there and who will be in charge of it all and what God is going to do. He gives them vivid details about all that is going to come and what it's going to be like, but he doesn't do that to strike fear into the disciples or to make them depressed about the future. Jesus tells them about the end so that he can strip the end of its power. Let the worst come, he says. Not a hair of your head shall perish. By your endurance you will gain your souls. He says, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. Don't worry about it. I'll be there. You may be betrayed by family, by friends. You may even be hated. But you don't have to worry about how you'll get the last word when you know that the last word belongs to God. I know this picture is not the rosiest, (laughs) to be hated, to be betrayed. I'm not here to say, doesn't this look fun? Let's get excited for it. I can't wait. But I do want us to see here that Jesus is preparing us and that he's helping us to realize that there is more to life than just being worried about the ending, than just the final result of how is this going to turn out? I mean, here we are at the end of the liturgical year, and I bet you haven't worried about that once. I bet you didn't even know it was coming. Isn't that nice to have one ending that we weren't worried about? 
We spend so much of our time worried about how things are going to turn out and what the end is going to be like. But when it comes to the end of time, the end of everything, when it feels like you have hit the end of everything, Jesus says, don't even worry about that. If everything is falling around you like the temple, Jesus says, God is still there. And this is just the beginning of what God will do next. And if God is prepared to make that kind of provision for us, even at the end of time, even at the end of all endings, imagine how much more God is preparing for you right now and all the various endings of life that we spend so much time worrying about. As we barrel toward the new year, you might be tempted to look back on the one that has passed and to evaluate it, to measure it by what you completed, by what you accomplished, by what you lost. But the true story, the true meaning, the true purpose of this moment and of this year is in what God is beginning. Here and now, Christ is making good on the promises that have been with us all the way since Isaiah. The great sower has already planted the vineyards where we shall feast. The rooms of welcome are already prepared in the Father's house. And the prayer you are lifting is already heard. So may we live as though we know how this is all going to end. And may we remember that resurrection is a retroactive power that it is able to take even that which was finished and over and done and change it into something new. That nothing good is ever truly lost in the hands of a God who holds eternity. And let us remember that the worst word never gets the last word over a risen Lord. And even now, at the harvest time, His work is not coming to an end. Even now, he's just gathering seeds of the new creation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.